to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we bring you part one, that's right, part one. Oh, tell me more. Q Imagine Dragons. Oh, no. <laughs> Murder on the Orient Express. I'm, tw- oh, I'm twirling. I'm twirling my Kenneth Branagh size mustache. <laughs> Your mustachios. <laughs> that thing is definitely plural, whatever it is. We are so excited to do Murder on the Orient Express and have so much to discuss that we decided to do this in two parts. This week we are only we are going to speak solely about the book. We actually made a point of not even watching any of the adaptations that are out there. So we we are fresh on the book, but on nothing else. And then next episode, we will be tackling only the adaptations for this novel, of which there are three, and of course the movie yet to come with Kenneth Branagh and his aforementioned mustachios in November. We will also have a special guest joining us um, from England. Yes. Shall we share yeah, our, our dear is? friend, Mark Aldridge? He has written the definitive text on Christie on screen. Which just happens to be the title as well <laughs> of, of that definitive text, Agatha Christie on screen. We've mentioned it many a time. He's fantastic, and we cannot wait to speak with him about the adaptations. But for now, let's stay with the text. Catherine Brobeck, take it away. It was first published on New Year's. Um, in the UK in 1934, and then in the US about two months later, on February 28th. And it had a different title. Murder on the Calais Couch was the US title. Let's talk about our victim. He's one Mr. Samuel Ratchet. He's a uh, suspicious-seeming older American traveler who ends up being found dead in his train berth on the Simplon Orient Express while the train is stranded in a blizzard near Venkovci, which is in Croatia. I'm surely mispronouncing that, although at the time it was in Yugoslavia. He was stabbed 12 times at varying angles of entrance and with varying degrees of strength. Mm -hmm. Very curious. Very odd. So yeah, let's talk about our suspects who are essentially just everyone that is on the Orient Express and quite specifically this carriage of the Orient Express, which is the carriage. It's the well, it's first and second class, but it's like the it's the wagon lee carriages, so carriage, so it's it's the sleeper. Right. It's the it's the sleeper carriage. So first up we have Princess Natalia Dragomirov, who is a toad-like, extremely old yet very wealthy aristocrat, and she is fantastic. She's wonderful. I think she is a favorite of both of ours, Indeed. correct? Indeed. Yeah. So then we have Mrs. Caroline Hubbard, who I don't believe is anybody's favorite, including anybody no. on the train, because mm-hmm. she's an extremely annoying American who harps on absolutely endlessly about like every single thing that she can find to nitpick and complain about at the train. And then she talks to anyone who'll listen about what she's going to tell her daughter because her daughter gives the best advice on train travel. And yeah, basically a piece of work. Then we have Countess Elena Maria Andrigny. And she is a delegate Hungarian, or is she? Yeah, and the sort of uh, romantic 
figure. Yeah. She seems very yeah. dependent on her husband, who is our next suspect, the Count Rudolf Hanjenyi, who is a notable Hungarian with diplomatic privilege. Next, we have Miss Mary Debenham, also a favorite of both mine and Catherine's. She is a young English governess who is returning from a governess stint in Baghdad. The context for her is that she is one of two people who Poirot actually sees outside of the Orient Express in the beginning of the story. Poirot sees them on a separate train as they're getting to the place where they all board the Orient Express, and she's um, arguing with Colonel Arbuthnot. And so he himself, Colonel Arbuthnot, is a respected English colonel who has spent a number of decades in India. He seems a little overly invested in Mary Debenham, besides being like otherwise quite conservative seeming. Right. For someone who he supposedly just met one train earlier, he seems to be quite uh, smitten and a little, taken a up. little clingy. He wants to eat with her at all times, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Next, we have Miss Greta Olsen, who is a Swedish missionary and very fretful, particularly over Mrs. Hubbard. She she has sort of a, a maternal vibe and seems like a sweet, harmless kind of a person. Hector McQueen is Ratchet's secretary, and he's only rather recently started with him. He's kind of um, picked up the gig in the Middle East. And if, by the way, we're to go by previous murders set on a train written by Agatha Christie, we should be suspicious of the secretary to the murdered man because that, in fact, was who done it well, in the mystery of the blue and train. And also, we should be Just suspicious saying. of the employee who's only recently started. Absolutely. Speaking of employees who only recently started, <laughs> we also have Ratchet's valet, Masterman. Yet another recent employee of the deceased. Uh, do we do we sense a trend here? Mm-hmm. Um, Cyrus Hardman, and he's like an ace NYC private eye who Ratchet has hired as protection. Next, and yeah, we're we're still going ish done, but still going. <laughs> Next, we have Hildegard Schmidt. She is a German ladies' maid to the Princess Natalia Dragomirov. Then we have Antonio Foscarelli, who is a... Foscarelli! <laughs> That's exactly, basically, how he's treated in this. Because he is a swarthy-looking Italian. Poirot's friend, who is the director of the train company, he believes immediately that it's Antonio who must have done it. Then we have Pierre Michel. He is the train conductor uh, and the person who would have been most likely to see anyone in the corridor on the night of the murder because he was sort of stationed at the end of the corridor and had a view of the goings-on in the hallway and whatnot. And then there's Dr. Constantine. He is a Greek doctor who is on the train, and he is um, in a separate carriage. The Pullman carriage. He, indeed. Um, or the Well, the Pullman compartment of the sleeper carriage. Correct. So um, in that, he shares that with Monsieur Book, who is Poirot's friend. The aforementioned kind of racist against Italians friend who runs the train company and, yeah, is Belgian and an old friend of Poirot's. They call each other Mon Cher and Mon Vieux. A lot. A lot. Which is kind of adorable. I know, it is. (laughs) So that is everyone. And, And for anyone who was keeping count, because you should be, that was 15 people. Yes. And then uh, well, Monsieur and Poirot. Poirot. 
Right. Of course, not a suspect, but Mr. Poirot is also in this sleeper carriage. So there are 16 people total, all helpfully diagrammed about a third of the way through the book so we can see exactly where they were sleeping in that carriage. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Ratchet was stabbed 12 times in a massive case of overkill. They look like they're made from a different hand. Um, Like, they're at different angles. Some of them seem to be left-handed, per Dr. Constantine. They're kind of, like, all over the torso. The other curious factor is that some of the wounds appear to have been made after he was actually already dead. Um, And possibly Mm -hmm. by quite some time. In this compartment is a pipe cleaner in the elegant handkerchief with the letter H embroidered. Two matches, one of which is flat and one of which is round, and a very small fragment of paper that reads... But only once it's burnt. Indeed. Hyphen, member little Daisy Armstrong. Those words flare up out of the fragment of paper as it's burnt in words of fire. Literally flare up. And so this is really the almost only clue that matters in this story and it's also the entire linchpin of everything that happens so we're going to be a little unorthodox in how we summarize this case we can't go through every single clue and every single suspect and explain how that clue may or may not make sense in relation to that individual it just makes more sense to talk about little daisy armstrong and that linchpin clue, and then to go from there to a bunch of, I, I guess we can call them fundamental clues that ultimately get Poirot to right. the solution of this case. So let's talk about little Daisy Armstrong. Let's. Christy was basing this a lot on the Lindbergh kidnapping. So again, this book was published New Year's Day uh, 19, in 1934, and two years earlier, in 1932, there was the infamous Lindbergh kidnapping. In this story, Daisy Armstrong is a lovely, sweet little three-year-old girl who's kidnapped from a wealthy family living in New York. In real life, it was a boy. His name was Charles, and he was only 20 months old. The Lindberghs lived in New Jersey, but very similar. You know, Daisy Armstrong's parents, Colonel and Mrs. Armstrong, were very much renowned. Colonel Armstrong is a war hero, essentially. And this is probably the only instance in which the real-life parallel is even more extreme, because Charles Lindbergh was quite, quite famous in his own right before this kidnapping took place. He, of course, made the first solo transatlantic flight in the spirit of St. Louis five years before this horrible kidnapping took place. Everyone reading this novel in 1934 was immediately thought of the Lindbergh case. And so um, in the case of the Armstrongs, he is half English, which does Mm -hmm. actually matter here. And she is the daughter of a world-renowned tragedian. The tragedian being an actor? (laughs) You might say. So I know. As always, just remember that. Is there a Christie novel that doesn't feature an actor? <laughs> now I'm, I'm beginning to wonder. We are starting. Like, we are starting to really think twice about that. Um, it does seem to come up quite often. Poor Daisy was kidnapped and, in theory, I guess, held for ransom by an international criminal enterprise, apparently run mm-hmm. by the notorious Cassetti, 
Um, and so he has apparently done this repeatedly to other high-profile families in the past, or at least his mm-hmm. international ring has. And so they're really well off, and they pay the ransom. And so it's a massive amount of money. It's $200,000 in 1934. It's very public because the family's public. And then her body's found, and the police realize that she's actually been dead the entire time. So he murdered her right from the get-go, and then started collecting ransom on the premise that she was alive. And not to dwell on the real-life version all that much, because it's just as bad, but basically the same thing happened with the Lindbergh baby. The body was found pretty close to where he had been taken. He was killed by a blow to the head, which is just awful. And the only other thing I would say that I thought was interesting as I was looking into the Lindbergh case just in preparation for this podcast is that I didn't quite realize the timing of that case and the publication of this book. I think I assumed that that was all sorted before Murder on the Orient Express came out. But the killer of the Lindbergh baby, who was this man named Bruno Richard Hauptmann, who was the cassetti of the novel, he was not actually arrested until after Murder on the Orient Express came out. So this was technically still an open case. I'm honestly not sure how the case had developed. Maybe people had a sense that the police were closing in on someone when the book came out, or maybe it just seemed as if they had no idea. I don't That I don't know, because I didn't have time to look at contemporaneous newspaper accounts or anything, but it's interesting to me that this was an open case when the book came out, which is pretty horrific, that, you know, that it really must have been seared into people's minds because they knew that this had happened, but the man hadn't been ID'd yet. And then in 1936... Bruno Hauptmann was executed. He was electrocuted for this, never confessed. His wife, his widow, actually, to her dying day, also protested his innocence. And there but, are some um, interesting, interesting conspiracy, conspiracy theories. theories about this. Yeah, yeah. As the, there always will be a, something this high profile and that, you know, garnered that much interest. It was, at that time, the trial of Bruno Hauptmann was called the trial of the century, which is interesting. Back in New York, in the world of Murder on the Orient Express, uh, the police basically ended up in their attempts to figure out what happened. They end up accusing the nursemaid, Suzanne, who's French, of having something to do with the kidnapping, even though she was completely innocent. And ultimately, her name was entirely cleared. But they hounded her and they hounded her. And so she eventually was so distraught that she couldn't live and she threw herself from her apartment window. Right. And that detail, by the way, horribly enough, I figured that was Christy just adding to the horror of it in a fictional way. That actually happened. That there actually was a, it was, it was a British servant, but it was, she was questioned so many times that she killed herself by eating silver polish. So then Sonia Armstrong finds that she's actually pregnant with another child, but in part it's implied due to the stress she and the infant both die after a premature birth. And then Colonel mm-hmm. Armstrong himself, absolutely devastated and grief-stricken, shoots himself. So basically what's happened is because of the actions of Cassetti... That entire nuclear family is obliterated along, along with... Along with Suzanne, the nursemaid. It's the last time I'll mention the, the Lindberghs. We'll move on. But real life, definitely a little messier. The Lindberghs went on to have five children, and they were potentially fascist? Nazi sympathizers. <laughs> yeah, they were fascists. And, well, not even just fascists, but like truly Nazi sympathizers. I mean, they, um, Mrs. Lindbergh became an acclaimed writer, but one of the first things that she wrote was very much a... 
not an apology uh, to Nazism, but certainly in support of it. But they kind of rehabilitated themselves from that. She wrote a lot of environmental stuff and, and other things. They, I mean, she lived until 2001, which I, you know, like well into her 90s, which is interesting. So anyway, they went on to do many other things, but not so much the, the poor Armstrong family in Christie's world. Indeed. So Poirot has to come to a solution, as do we. And I think the easiest <laughs> way is to just say this. Right now, even though we have been joking about it the whole time, Ratchet was Cassetti. And everybody on the train, uh, with the exception of Dr. Constantine, Monsieur Book, and Poirot himself, are all, in fact, the loved ones of the Armstrongs. They decided to play jury, judge, and executioner and bring justice back around for what Cassetti did that he could not be prosecuted for back in New York. Well, he was prosecuted and there was a trial, but he was acquitted. Correct. And it's implied that he was acquitted because he um, bribed somebody. Had a, he bribed somebody, who knows, a judge, jury members. It's, it's unclear, but there was an unjust acquittal. And that is presented to us in a way that we are not meant to question it because it's coming directly from Poirot. So to go back to our massive suspect list... We're going to go in the same order and tell you who everyone really is, or at least what their relation is to the Armstrongs and to Cassetti, who, by the way, so that means that he willingly changed his name to Ratchet. Yeah, which seems a really terrible PR call. If you're a horrible monster murderer, maybe when you go into hiding, don't change your name to Ratchet. Yeah, it just, just saying. Yeah, it doesn't, just doesn't saying. sound good. May I have my cigarettes, please, Miss Ratchet? You sit down, Mr. Cheswick, and wait your turn. So Princess Natalia Dragomirov, she is who she says she is, but she is also the godmother of Sonia Armstrong, who is Daisy's mother. Uh, Mrs. Caroline Hubbard, the annoying American. This is actually the biggest twist, but mm-hmm. she's actually Linda Arden. Her original name was Goldenberg. That's going to come up. Um, and so she is, in fact, this famous actress of the New York stage, and she's the mother of Sonia Armstrong and the grandmother of Daisy. The Countess Elena Maria Andreni is actually Sonia Armstrong's younger sister, Helena. Goldenberg. Countess Andreni, that is her married name because her husband is actually the only person who is exactly who he says he is. He is, in fact, Count Andreni, and he married Helena Goldenberg. Right. Mary Debenham, that's the Armstrong's governess. Colonel Arbuthnot is the best friend to Colonel Armstrong. Greta Olson was Daisy Armstrong's nurse. Hector McQueen was a friend of the Armstrongs, but also his father was the failed prosecutor of the case against Cassetti. Masterman is the butler for the Armstrongs. Cyrus Hardman, he billed himself as a New York private eye, which he actually is, but... More to the point, he was also once in love with Suzanne, the nursemaid who killed herself. Right, and Hildegard Schmidt, we didn't have a lot to say about her earlier. We don't have a lot to say about her now, other than the fact that she was the Armstrong's cook. Antonio Foscarelli was the chauffeur to the Armstrong's. Pierre Michel was Suzanne's father. That covers it because Dr. Constantine, the doctor, and Monsieur Bouc, the uh, director of the train company, who are, you know, function in the novel as the companions to Poirot as they're investigating, they are are not involved in this either. And Poirot, of course, is Poirot. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this is part of the reason why we want to talk about this, I guess, in a slightly more convoluted way, because Poirot himself doesn't know entirely what to do with the case. 
And ultimately, the way that the murder is solved is out of coincidence. And so ultimately, the solution is for Poirot, not any particular clue. What he does is that he basically comes to the conclusion that there's no way any one person or even any two could people have committed the crime. Because for, could have committed the crime. Because for a while, with, with those 12 stab wounds and them looking like they were um, inflicted by at least two different people, they, from the very beginning, there is at least some hypothesizing that there could be two murderers. Right. And we've certainly seen that before and we'll see that again. But Poirot comes to the conclusion that there's no combination of two people or one person acting alone who could have possibly done it. So the only iteration that makes sense is that everyone did it. But it's circumstantial is really what it is, which there's nothing wrong with that. The example people always use in a court of law when explaining to juries that actually convicting someone on circumstantial evidence is okay if you find it convincing is if someone comes in and their coat is wet and they're carrying an umbrella and the umbrella is wet and you look outside and it looks like there's water on the pane of glass and if that to you means that beyond a reasonable doubt it's raining even though you didn't go outside and literally touch the rain then you just convicted someone on circumstantial evidence right so that's fine and it's just you know it's it's whether or not you believe that Poirot could really get there that becomes the question but I, I think it's helpful to go through some of the clues that helped him in a significant way right and we acknowledge by the way that this is difficult I mean it's a very awkward it's part of the brilliance of this plot it's one of a kind luckily we're never going to have to deal with this again but this is a very awkward mystery puzzle to well, elucidate and it's not yes indeed <laughs> so the first clue is Elena Andreni's smeared passport. Poirot notices very early on that the first letter of her name is smudged, and this inadvertently also leads to him paying close attention to her full name, including her maiden name of Goldenberg, and that's where he makes the connection with Sonia Armstrong, whose maiden name was also Goldenberg. So the deduction there is that someone was covering up the first letter of her name for a reason. There is obviously a focus already on the letter H, given that one of the other clues we got in Ratchet's room was a handkerchief embroidered with the letter H. So the handkerchief with the letter H is made of very fine Parisian handiwork. And so it's an item that would have cost a substantial amount of money, more than um, most of the people on the train could probably afford, at least like on a regular basis for something as minimal as a handkerchief. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what we know is that on board, there are Hector, Hildegard, Hubbard, and Hardman. Also Hermione. Don't forget Mary Debenham's middle name is Hermione. Shout out, Hermione Granger. (laughs) Oh, Hermione Granger. Now, if you two don't mind, I'm going to bed before either of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed. Or worse, expelled. Mary Debenham is a total Hermione. She totally is. So they all have the letter H. But... It's mentioned many a time that the princess is Russian. Right. And this is a favorite Christie clue. We we only mentioned the short story in passing, the double clue, uh, because it's the short story that features Vera Rosikoff. If Poirot, as Christie wrote him, has a woman who got away, she is right. it. And that short story hinges on a letter of the Cyrillic alphabet looking like a different letter in the Roman alphabet, and that's what we have here, because a Cyrillic N for Natalia, which is the princess's Christian name, that looks like an H. So the H is actually an N, and it is the princess's handkerchief. 
what it means is that we we have these clues that are pointing to different people, right? Obviously, it's it's suspicious that the Countess Andreni or her husband smeared her passport. It's suspicious that the princess's handkerchief was somehow dropped in the murdered man's carriage. Clue number three, which is that letter fragment that we also mentioned, that is the really key one because that's the one that gives us this whole backstory of Daisy Armstrong and eventually allows us to connect everyone to the murder Mm -hmm. victim. But every other clue is really just creating confusion for Poirot because they're all pointing to different people. So we'll just go through a couple more of them. One is this business with Mrs. Hubbard's sponge bag. Uh, Mrs. Hubbard, she claims that she woke up and there was this man in her room and she was really freaked out and she couldn't tell if the door was locked or not to her compartment because her sponge bag, it's like, you know, her toiletry bag essentially was blocking the lock. But the door locks are situated differently in odd numbered carriages as opposed to even numbered carriages. And Given that Mrs. Hubbard is in an odd-numbered carriage the night of the murder, the sponge bag actually wouldn't have blocked the door lock. So Poirot realizes she must be lying for some reason. Right, and she keeps insisting basically on, like, various times and that this man was in her room. And so, you know, she's really trying to bring that as a misdirect. And speaking of Mrs. Hubbard, and did we mention actors? did we ever... So this is it's Agatha's uh, Chekhov's gun, right? Right. If the word actor is mentioned, then it's going to have a payoff. <laughs> right. So we know that Daisy's grandma was a world-famous actress, and guess who it is? It's Mrs. Hubbard. It's Linda Arden. In disguise. And the only misdirect we, we got there, which reminded me a little bit of the clue in The Problem at Sea. Remember when we're told that the man who ends up being the murderer is um, skilled at sleight mm-hmm. of hand, but then we're supposed to extrapolate from that that perhaps he would be good at throwing his voice and being right. a ventriloquist. And we're specifically told that Linda Arden is a renowned tragedian. Right. But what she does is that she takes it in the other direction, like many a tragic actress probably wants you to do, do and she very comedy. much fills out this broad comedy role with Mrs. Hubbard. So that's, that was a little, I appreciated the the nuance there. Indeed. And then this is, I just appreciated this clue because it was so specific and it's a little ridiculous, but as Poirot is, is cottoning on to the fact that all of these people are affiliated with the Armstrongs in some way, he guesses that Mary Debenham in that she's a governess, was probably the governess to Daisy Armstrong. And when he interviews Countess Andreni, who is the sister to Sonia Armstrong, so Daisy Armstrong's aunt, he says, did you uh, recognize in Mary Debenham the governess uh, to your niece? And Countess Andreni says, oh, no, that's not her at all. She looked nothing like that. She was big and she was red-haired, and Mary Debenham is very small and dark-haired. Right. And Parr says, oh, what was her name? And she says, Freebody, Miss Freebody. <laughs> And he says, "Mm mm-hmm, okay, okay, sure. And basically, Debenham and Freebody is a precursor to the chain that is now known as Debenhams, 
which I thought was That's was kind of funny. Thing. So that was a store name, though, that would have been well-known to readers. And to Poirot, apparently he shops at Debenham and Freebody, so he realized that not only was Mary Debenham likely the governess, but also that Countess Andrini was lying for some reason. So it's yet another clue where he's just like, everyone, you know, there's lying, there's confusion, this just seems to be a web that every time he pokes at it just gets thicker and more complicated as opposed to simpler. So all of this is leading him to the ultimate conclusion. And um, we do have one final clue that kind of seems to get him over the hump. Yeah, it's foreigners. And that seems like a really weird clue, but it is brought up so many times over the course of the book that you have to start to take notice of it because what the clue is, is A, the train is way too full for this time of year. It's supposed to have empty berths. Poirot was supposed to get an empty berth the first night and he couldn't. And it's incredibly unusual to have that many people on board. And secondly, not only are there a lot of people on board, they are covering a broad range of nationalities and of classes with everybody Mm -hmm. from Russians to Italians to Americans to French, French, Germans. It's unusual. And I think that now, and even then you would say that, well, yeah, okay. In train stations. And like we would say in airports, that really is where you find everybody. Right. But Mm -hmm. where else might you find all those people together? Where else indeed, Catherine? I think it might be in New York. An American household, very specifically, is one in which you could very easily have servants and friends and a lot of different people of different nationalities and classes all under one roof in a way that just isn't quite the same with, or just not as likely in a British household or anywhere else. A lot of immigrants, especially in the late 1920s and early 1930s in New York. Right. So what Poirot realizes is, oh, these people all lived with the Armstrongs. This is essentially the Armstrongs household transported to a train so that they can all kill the guy who killed Daisy Armstrong. That's really how he figures it out. The only thing I would I would add is that there is a, a slight wrinkle because we do have 12 mm-hmm. stab wounds. Mm-hmm. And there's this notion of it being a jury, a self-appointed jury of 12. There are 13, though. There are 13 people in addition to Poirot, Dr. Constantine, and Mr. Bouc on the train who are also involved in the Armstrong household. And he comes to the conclusion that the one person who actually did not stab Cassetti is the Countess Andreni herself. Which is like sort of touching in a really weird way. Right, because she's the only one who actually... She lived in the house with them. Right. She wasn't a member of the nuclear family itself, obviously, but she was very close She was the little sister... Because it's implied that Mary Debenham is a little bit older than her, right? Because she was the governess. But they're probably relatively close to the same age. 
so that accounts for why it's 12 and not 13. It's, it's kind of an, a nice little inverse where Poirot actually has to figure out who is innocent, right. as a, who didn't do it, <laughs> right. as opposed to who did do it. Because everyone did it except for her, even though she also kind of did. I mean, it's not like she, she didn't know what was co- going on, but she did for sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah, she was an accomplice before, during, and after the fact, but <laughs> she didn't actually stab him as everyone else did. Of course, Poirot does offer another solution which is the one that, with all of this misdirection and the ruse that these 12-13 co-murderers have set up in that there's supposedly a man dressed up in a conductor's uniform who was the one who did it and stole away in the night, and a woman in a scarlet kimono. Which Um, Poirot finds conveniently stashed in his luggage. Yeah, in his own luggage. The fact that the Orient Express itself hit a snowbank and is stranded put a wrench in their plan because it immediately made this a locked room mystery and that no one could leave the train and survive. So Poirot immediately knew that the murderer had to be among those in the carriage. But if things had gone according to plan, it would have been very easy for them to say, oh, no, I saw that man. He was dressed up as a conductor. He's not any of the conductors I see right now, though. Oh, well, I guess he escaped out into the night and this was their way of pinning the murder on someone who didn't exist and ensuring that no one who actually does exist was unfairly blamed for it. That's the funniest thing is that they are very sensitive to making sure that no innocent gets blamed. Absolutely. There are obviously other carriages in this train. There are probably much less affluent people who are stuck in the non-sleeper cars and they've just been stuck also in Yugoslavia for (laughs) hours slash days, not in beds. But those people just didn't have access because it was it was cut off. And that was very much part of their plan. And the conductor, Pierre Michel, can testify that he didn't see anyone entering. And that was very much on purpose. And they know they lock all the doors going forward to those cars. Right. So it's kind of funny that the locked room element is unplanned and is the thing that actually it's what makes it such a deliciously good whodunit for Poirot and well, for our purposes. But that can't have been part of the plan or else this whole thing doesn't really make sense. They're winging it. You know, the other clue that we didn't talk about is Mary Debenham's behavior. This is true. Mary Debenham is very, very frantic when she believes earlier in the book that she is going to miss her opportunity to hop on the Orient Express. The Orient Express, right. But then when the Orient Express hits this snowbank and is stranded... She's she, totally cool. <laughs> she claims like, oh, right, yeah, I guess I'm not going to make whatever I'm supposed to be making. But Poirot can tell she doesn't really care, whereas she really cared about getting on the Orient Express. So that is also curious right. to him. So it's almost difficult to talk about murder on the Orient Express because it's become such an established part of the Christie canon, but it's ingenious. They all did it. You know, having that as an answer and being able to construct a novel and convincingly pull that off is difficult. The other nuance to this that I only appreciated upon rereading was Christie really did have to ensure that all the immediate family of the Armstrongs were dead. Because it doesn't really make sense. Like, if Colonel Armstrong or Mrs. Armstrong were still alive... They couldn't be on the train... They couldn't be on the train because it would be too obvious, and they but they would have to be because they would be the ones to exact revenge. So it's all very well handled, and it's tricky to pull off, but she certainly does. I was struck while reading it by the fact that 
I don't want to say this in a way to be dismissive because I certainly don't feel that way. But when you know what's happening, it does take a little bit of air out of the novel. I agree with that. I mean, Catherine and I were talking about this before we recorded, and we had a similar experience, obviously, with the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Relies on a big twist. Once you know the twist, rereading it is a very different experience from reading it the first time. And the purpose of this podcast is not to judge these books on how good of a reread they are. Right. But even with that same issue with Murder of Roger Ackroyd, it was still noticeably more enjoyable to read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, I think because it's such a traditional country house locked room mystery puzzle that... It had, you know, all of those elements were still working well, for it, and they and were still there. The fact this that you have not No, it's not. And also, um, in Roger Ackroyd, you have a fairly compelling narrator. Uh, yes, he's he's so entertaining. And, you know, we just finished Lord Edgware Dies, which was narrated by Hastings. And, again, for as much shade as we like to throw on Hastings... I have to say, I much prefer a Poirot story narrated in the first person by Hastings than these third-person novels because there's something just flat about them in comparison well, to Hastings' Especially voice. this, because this is a little bit repetitive because all it is, all it can be, right, mm-hmm. is a series of interviews in the dining car. Right. It feels very plotting, plotting with two Ds. Poirot is brought onto the case because he's right there, he looks at the dead man's compartment. They get some clues. They go to the dining car. They interview some people. They go up and down the row of compartments. They look in people's stuff. They interview some more people. And then he has them all come into the dining car and he tells them the answer. That's right. it. And it, the progression of the story is extremely linear. And yeah, there's something flat about it. And once you know from the get-go that they all did it, it's not an entertaining read. No. Well, here's <laughs> the other thing about it. Because if you didn't know, there is the threat that the murderer is still in the train. Right. And that is brought up at various points. But if you know what the solution is, there's not any of that threat actually in the text. And that's a good point because this is one of the more concentrated locked room mysteries that Christie created, I think. It's extreme. They're on it's just, just a, one carriage of a train in the middle of a snowstorm right. in Yugoslavia. <laughs> so right. there is nowhere to go. And if there's another murderer, they're screwed. They have oh. no communication with anyone. So that probably does propel a reader along. Right. I Um, mean, if you don't know what the plot is, in theory, that's terrifying. Yeah. As I said, I don't think it's fair to judge the book based on how flat the reread felt, but it was interesting to me that it did feel that flat. We talk a lot about, and people do talk a lot about, extra legal justice in Christie novels, and this is probably the most stark example of an extra legal solution. Right. However... I was struck by how not conflicted the extra legal solution seems to be. As I said before, when Poirot gives us the information that Cassetti unfairly got away, I didn't didn't feel like I was meant to question it. I will say that 
because I are immediately we, thought are of... Are we ever meant to question Poirot? Maybe sometimes, especially if he's being conceited or if he is being... But this is not as to his judgment of affairs and people other than himself. I think we're, we're not. Right. But I did because I immediately, to be perfectly honest, I immediately thought of O.J. Simpson. The parallels between the Lindbergh case, the trial of the century. Obviously, O.J. Simpson case was, was called exactly that like 60 years later. And a lot of people say that O.J. Simpson gamed the system, but he didn't do it by bribing a judge. He didn't do it by bribing a jury. He just did it by hiring really excellent lawyers. And he hired lawyers that exploited weaknesses in the prosecution. They exploited... And people wonder why other people hate lawyers. <laughs> but what's interesting to that is, so when you complicate that question, though, and it makes and O.J. Simpson makes it very easy to complicate that question of, okay, well, but did he get his day in court? There was a year-long trial there, and he was acquitted. So does that mean that now people should just, even if you are 100% convinced yourself as a spectator that he did it, does that mean that he should be killed after the fact and that an extra legal solution is the way to go? Well, it's, it's a more complicated question well, than, than the book makes, than the book is, is presenting it the as. Que- the question is, do you believe in vigilantism or do right. you believe in letting the system do its job? And the interesting hang up here, and I think it's a really interesting one for Poirot, is that Poirot actually does believe in vigilantism in some ways. Because yeah, think, he, yeah. he himself pretty frequently acts as the judge in cases. Yeah. I already brought up problem at sea. Yeah. That's another situation in which he outright murders someone because he he's convinced that he they did it. He doesn't murder him himself. He induces his the man's death. Correct. Yeah. But the thing that vigilantism elides or at least oversimplifies is the question of guilt. This is what like the Innocence Project is about, right? It's very easy to say, oh, yeah, 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 he definitely did it. Do we know for sure that Cassetti did it? Like, are we totally positive? I know we're not supposed to question that in the book. Yes, he did it. But if we're just talking about extra legal justice as a thing in the real world, that's the whole point of working within the system. Do we know he did it? 12 people said they weren't sure that O.J. Simpson did it. Aren't we supposed to respect that? Well, but then what the Innocence Project would say to you is look at all of these people that 12 people said they did it and they didn't. The question then is not whether it's in the system or out of the system. It's how do you depend on 12 people ever, whether or not it's in a courtroom or whether it's on a train? How do you depend on a jury of your peers on making the right decision? But that's exactly it. That's the, you know, vigilantism is not addressing that issue. That issue is not addressed in this book. (laughs) No. The issue of certainty. The certainty is taken for granted, which bothered me in a way that I never thought about on my first reading of it, or even whenever I watched the movies or just thought about the book in general. It's an interesting question that gets to the heart of every single narrative about vigilantism, and it gets to a lot, I think, a lot of the books with Borrow. And the thing that I find interesting that really doesn't come up here, which is funny because my last memory of this book is not the book. It's a Suchet adaptation, and we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that next week. But Mm -hmm. in that, he does have a more distinct sense of what justice is supposed to look like. And in this, Mm -hmm. he lets it go in a way that I don't think I remembered other people make the decision, Dr. Constantine and Mr. Book make the decision that, okay, we're going to go with the 
stranger who disappeared, and he says, "I'm retiring from the case." He right. doesn't. He doesn't say anything. That is the last line of the of the novel. Right. The reason why it also really bothers me is that certainty is something that we are given in every other whodunit, or at least every other Chrissy whodunit, because that's the whole point. The whole point is that by the end of the book. Poirot or Miss Marple or someone else explains how it happened and we are then given some sort of confirmation, usually in a very convenient confession from the murderer saying, how, I can't believe that you figured it out, you know, but there is no question that that actually happened. What's interesting here is that the motivational murder of Daisy Armstrong, we certainly know what actually happened on that train, but we are just supposed to believe that... Cassetti killed Desi Armstrong because Poirot says, but then this is the one case <laughs> where we know that Poirot does not have specialized knowledge of this. Poirot just read a newspaper account, just like everyone else. Like he wasn't everybody there. Else. This didn't happen in Belgium. He wasn't on the case. Right. He did not. He did not put his little gray cells to work. If he had, then I would have less of a problem with that. And I think being confronted with a lack of certainty within the framework of one of these stories that bothers me and makes this a less satisfying read. Well, I think uh, it's I think it's supposed to be distressing and I mean I think that the thing for Poirot is that Is it um, supposed to be distressing though cuz I didn't get that sense in the novel. I think the adaptations grapple with it. I don't think the novel does. Um I really don't. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, I think it intends to. I think it gets a little bit cut off towards the end because there is an emotional build and there is the question raised by Lindarden, basically like, okay, well then come at us. What are you going to do? You don't have any evidence. You guessed this solution. So if you think that, if you think that justice here was not meted out appropriately, that's fine. I will put myself in handcuffs. That's basically right, Linda what, Arden. Yeah. Linda Arden says, "I'll just because she also says I'm old. There yeah. are all these young people here. She even mentions, which was catnip to Poirot, that yes, as Poirot suspected, Mary Debenham and Colonel Arbuthnot are in love. That's what what their their conversation was about that he he overheard a little bit of. So they're right. gonna go get married and live happily ever after, <laughs> right. like two little murderers should. We should also just mention the funny thing that it's dedicated to Max." Yeah, she was married to him at this point. The first time she traveled on the Orient Express was soon after all of her troubles with Archie and divorcing him and sorting all that out and coming out to Baghdad and getting to know the people who would eventually connect her with Max. And then she took the Orient Express many a time on her travels to the Middle East. So I I feel like there's a connection there in her mind between Max and the Orient Express. And um, she didn't dedicate too many of her books to him. Let's get to rankings. All right. Let's talk about some plot mechanics. It's brilliant, right? I mean, it's there's a reason yeah. why they're making another ill-advised movie adaptation with Kenneth Branagh's weird facial hair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because the plot is ingenious, and there's no way around that. One of the things that I would say that is the big strike against it to me is that much like Monsieur Poirot, we can't actually figure out the plot. The clues are not actually there to figure out the plot without being told a bunch of information. I think that's true. Anecdotally, I do have a friend who was halfway through Murder on the Orient Express and not a Christie reader in general, had never seen an adaptation and actually looked up from the book and said, maybe they all did it. 
seriously did that. It is the obvious solution in some ways, but there aren't actually clues supporting that. So that's there aren't clues, but it is there is this overall sense of I mean, and and some of the characters even say it. It is checked throughout the novel that God, it seems like they all did it. Right. But if for our mystery puzzle mechanics, we want to be able to go from A to B to C to D to our answer at E. I'm with you on that. The other thing that actually really bothered me, we talk about coincidence and if there's too much of a reliance on coincidence in the plot mechanics, that's not great. Right. And the key clue here and the thing that really opens up the entire case is that scrap of paper. The Daisy that has Armstrong, all, yeah. That says Daisy Armstrong on it. And it's already been burnt, so Poirot manages to reburn it such that the words spring up out of the paper as words of fire and they happen to be words that say member little daisy armstrong and uh, come on right that's just so convenient there there should have been a better way to to get that information out that bugs me a little bit that said it's so brilliant that i think we agreed on this one that we would give it a nine which is extremely high it's just getting a slight demerit for those right issues so plot, plot credibility. credibility, does this seem like something that would, if not actually happen, does it seem like real people would do it? And I mean, we have definitely been in disagreement on some of these because sure. I've just been like, no human person would behave like that. Here, you know what? Despite the fact that 13 people colluded to stab a man to death in a closed train car, I pretty much of the opinion that everybody actually behaves in a pretty rational manner. Absolutely. They're grief-stricken. They're Mm -hmm. fueled by this horrifying injustice. I totally agree with that. I have one thing that drove me a little crazy, and it just seemed so, just like such a false note in the book, which is that there is actually a person who is listed as an extra traveler that was supposed to be in the, in this sleeper car, mm-hmm. but he doesn't show up. And his name is Harris. And Poirot, right away, at, when he gets on the train, says, oh, well, Mr. Harris is, is never going to come. I read Dickens. Right. And that is a, that is a very sly reference to Mrs. Harris, from Martin Chuzzlewit, who is the imaginary friend of one Sari Gamp, one of Dickens's greatest characters. And um, that's insane. So what that means is that these people that went to all this trouble to hide that they knew each other, to all get on the same train at the same time off season that they had to fill out the car with an extra name so that no one else would take that birth. Poirot ends up taking it because, you know, he muscles his way on with the help of Mr. Book. But anyway, that's why they put that name in there, that they would choose a name that is actually a reference to an imaginary person. No. Ridiculous, annoying. I just, why? Why, Agatha? Why? You do hear this occasionally when people uh, have to, like, use an alias and they pick something that's, like, ludicrous. Ridiculous. Yeah. And I just feel like she just, she just, like, wanted to make a Dickens joke. Oh, I think probably so. I think we all came out on an eight. In yeah. this one, both yeah. of us, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is uh, very high because it is, I mean, it, you know, it all tracks and, and makes sense from a character perspective. Totally um, speaking of characters, so series-long characters, obviously all we have here is Monsieur Poirot. This is not a great Poirot novel. Part of it, I think, is the third person. Well, he doesn't, have, just, a, he doesn't have a lot to do in right. the sense that he doesn't have a lot of Poirot being Poirot. 
Right. There aren't a lot of intimate moments because there's no one for him to be intimate with. I mean, he is an old friend with Mr. Book, and yes, they call each other Mon Vieux and Mon Cher, but that's it. <laughs> like, it's not, yeah, you know, I mean, the that's most, the extent of it. The best parts of Poirot are all packed into the beginning of the novel. Right, but once he gets on the train, he kind of disappears as a, as a, as as a, a character. recognizable character, yeah. which is just too bad. Six. Yeah, fine by Six. me. Okay. Let's talk about the book characters because, as I, as we mentioned, I think we both felt the same way about mm-hmm. two characters in particular. Yeah. So I think that we both agree: Dragomir off mm-hmm. and Mary Debenham. And yeah, they're so, both fantastic. Yeah. Starting with Mary Debenham, I guess you know she really does seem like this engaged, interesting, bright young woman who mm-hmm. happens to have somewhat suspicious passage on all of these trains. The sad thing to me is that it doesn't really pay off. She's built up at the beginning of the story into an arc that she doesn't actually get to complete because plot business gets in the way with her character. It totally does. It feels like the story forgets about her a little bit or she just gets steamrolled by plot. The only part of this book that I remembered from my initial read, which must have been decades ago, was when Poirot first sees Mary Debenham. Christie writes, he liked the burnished black head with its neat waves of hair and her eyes cool, impersonal, and gray. But she was, he decided, just a little too efficient to be what he called jolie femme. I know, I like that too. It's such Um, a great description. And the princess, by the way, I love when she's she's described as looking like a toad a lot. But there's there's one scene in which Christy describes that yes, her face looked like a toad, but also like a toad, her eyes were like jewels. They glittered with, you know, intelligence and life, just as a toad's eyes do. And I know exactly what she means. No, and she's like so opinionated and clearly she's the brains behind this operation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every time she appears, the book comes to life a little bit more than it does in other places. As we said, it gets a little bit flat sometimes. Let's be honest, it gets flat with most of the other characters. They're either caricature-like, like Foscarelli, or just boring, like Arbuthnot. And Greta, right, all she seems to do is like be pulling out her sleeves and like trying not to cry. Yeah, two out of 16 is not enough. And we're including Poirot in there even, you know, I mean, we (laughs) already talked about him, but he's even not that memorable. So let's say six for book characters. And then setting and tone. I think that most people, if asked, is there a good setting for Murder on the Orient Express, would say, of course there is. It's set amidst the snowbanks of Yugoslavia. And it's, I, I was underwhelmed by the setting in the novel because I did not feel that it ever ever actually came to life. And I certainly do not always feel that way in, in Christie novels. I think she did a better job of evoking Cornwall and Peril at End House than she does evoking the snowy banks of Yugoslavia in this novel. My memory of it was that it was more evocative than it. I think it actually is, and I think that's because of the adaptations. Yeah. That the, the 70s yeah. movie is extremely evocative, so if we're going to be judging the, the book, I actually would give it lower marks. In general, there's a big tonal shift here from Lord Edward Ives. And obviously, that's to be expected, given we are changing our narration perspective. I think we've yet to encounter a Christie novel written in the third person that has captured us as to tone. Yes, I think that that is... I think that's a fair statement, right? I agree. So I think we're coming out on a, on a seven with setting and tone. Because we do have to give her some credit for guts, right? I mean, it takes guts to set something on a snowy oh, bank in Yugoslavia. Definitely. So stuck in its time, 
Yeah. Um, it's not so bad, which yeah, is it's really not, I, surprising, to be honest, in a, in a train full of a bunch of... Um, of foreigners. Foreigners, where we really, really could descend into some bad ethnic stereotyping. We only do a little bit. Usually when we don't have many deductions for Stuck in its Time, it's because the novel is set squarely in... England and there are no foreigners or peoples different in significant ways from Christy herself so there's no xenophobia on display but here we have the opposite I mean we've got all sorts of nationalities and classes but it's part you know the inclusiveness is part of the point right like these are all people that actually formed a community of sorts both as a household and then as a murderous unit of vigilantism and it works right and i mean (laughs) there is a lot of racism directed towards antonio italians yeah well and italians in general but you know it's pretty much acknowledged by the book that that is racist thinking. It is acknowledged, but I would argue for one deduction here, there's a slight final dig at the notion of Italians and their proclivities to stab when we are told at the very end that it was indeed Antonio's idea to stab him. That to me felt like, because, you know, it is really true. I mean, let's be honest. Italians really do like to stab people. Also, Cassetti was Italian. Yes. His um, criminal enterprise based in New York City, there's a very, very strong hint that perhaps he is, you know, one of those mafia fellows. Sure. We agreed on one deduction as being appropriate Mm -hmm. for this one? Okay. So that gets us to an overall score of 9 plus 8 plus 6 plus 6 plus 7 minus one deduction for a grand total of 35 points, which puts... Murder on the Orient Express in a tie with with Peril at End House for second place. First place still belongs to the Murder of Roger Ackroyd at 37 points. And going along with our breaking of ties, I would have to give Murder on the Orient Express the edge just for iconic status and ingenuity of plot mechanics. I will reluctantly agree with you, although I will say that I think I can speak for both of us that we actually enjoyed reading Parallel and House way more. Well, that is the end of part one of Murder on the Orient Express. So much more to discuss because next episode, we are talking with Mark Aldridge about the adaptations. We will have watched all those adaptations. To reiterate, since this is going to be an adaptation-focused episode, we should tell you again what those adaptations are if you should so desire to watch them in advance. Those are the classic 1974 feature film starring Albert Finney as Hercule Poirot, the 2001 made-for-TV movie starring Alfred Molina as Mr. Poirot, and, of course, the much more recent 2010 adaptation as part of the David Suchet ITV series. And surely we will touch on the 2017 version in which something takes over Kenneth Branagh's face. In the meantime, as always, you can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or find Catherine at Brobcat or me at Kemper Donovan or find us on Instagram at allaboutagatha or on Facebook. Facebook page is allaboutagatha. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.